0: Today, we're going to be reading from Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, and being that it's such a short passage, instead of the responsive reading, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. If you all stand with me, the public reading of God's Word, reading from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. So as the Holy Spirit said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for gathering us here. Uh, we're obviously here because we want our hearts to be tender before you, and that uh, we want to learn how to, uh, how to allow and yield to you so that you would remove this heart of stone and uh, give us instead your heart of flesh. And uh, obviously because we want to enter into that sweet rest. The rest that only you can provide and the only true peace that a heart will know. So Lord Father, uh, as your servant preaches your word, we ask that through your word that this would be made accessible, that all of us would hear your message in there and that they would change and unlock things inside us. The knots that may be in us, that they will be loosened and that by your grace and your power that we would indeed enter into that rest Rejoicing of the softness of our hearts. pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. And the people of God responded. Amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon. It's a, it's a wonderful privilege to be preaching to you on the 49th anniversary of our church. That's a pretty big deal. I thought to myself, 49, what, a, what an awkward number. You know, it's not 50, but 49 is seven times seven. Seven is a very highly biblical holy number, the number of completion. So there's something going on uh, with the coincidence of this 49th church uh, anniversary being the very day we have a a new person coming into leadership, and it's going to be an exciting chapter for NBC indeed. So stay tuned, folks, That's what I want to say. Although our passage is from Hebrew, I will be trying to, attempting to, to, the whole message is actually the first third of the entire book of Exodus. And I'm going to try to, just, uh, I can't even, I don't even have time to be able to unpack it, but there's a thrust of the story, the narrative has, it carries its own power, and it will hopefully touch us. So it won't be my thoughts or my commentaries on this side so much, as it will be the very text, the very story that God ra- writes for, um, regarding his people to be handed down from generation to generation. Now, the story of Exodus begins after the death of Joseph and his generation, followed by a great multiplication of the Israelites in the land of Egypt. One pharaoh that later comes into power, uh, he has absolutely no knowledge about Joseph. Even though he should stand in there in the memory, of of the Israelites and Egypt as an important figure in their history. He saved nations by interpreting the seven years of coming plenty of the harvest and had advised the powers that be to store away the grain and the food for the seven years of famine that to come. And as a result, Egypt became very wealthy because as there was nothing to eat for seven years, many of the surrounding countries of Egypt they came in in droves and purchased food with a lot of valuables. But just as God had told Abraham in a dream, these vast number of uh, Israelites, the people that God had chosen for himself, they became eventually slaves in Egypt. And there were just so many of them, there were so many of them, that the Egyptians feared that they could join forces with surrounding neighbors, the, the neighboring the neighboring enemies of Egypt, and then they could fight against them, maybe gain their freedom and their independence and then flee. So what they did in response to this fear, paranoia, is that they worked them ruthlessly. Ruthlessly. I remember when I first came here, I did a sermon series in the theology of work. And, uh, uh, and this type of work is supposed to be good, but, but the work that they had to do in slavery was designed to make their lives bitter. And uh, I'm sure you guys will agree, hard work is good, right? Nod your heads if hard work you think is good. A day of of labor under the sun is sweet, but this was harsh, denigrating labor. The kind of work that really brought down the image of the person down to just a a garden variety beast of burden. And on top of that, because they wanted to take measure to further weaken the Israelites, they were instructing the midwives to kill the babies if they are born male. Keep the girls, but kill the baby boys. It's population controlled by infanticide, killing a baby. And this was something that the king of Egypt had them do, but the midwives that were in charge of delivering the babies, because they, were, they had a fear of God, they disobeyed him. Keep your thumb right there, because this is a very important thing. The fear of God is very, very important. Every decent human being, has some form of this in their hearts and it's good that it's found in there. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Beginning of knowledge. We could have our heads filled with a vast amount of information, but if we have the fear of the Lord, that's where it all begins and everything has its rightful interpretive scope. But now I have to take a moment and pause and I have to ask this question. How does a king of Egypt Arrive to the point of thinking that he has a right to kill babies, has a right to order this killing of babies. It's not just a story in the distant past. This, in fact, happens again right after the birth of Jesus. This king of King Herod calls for a massacre of every two uh, male child under two years of age and, and under, right? And in the contemporary setting, when you're looking at our, our milieu in our society today, The baby is killed while still inside the womb, aspirated through an abortive medical procedure. I just referred to this data online, but in a 2019 fact sheet on Guttmacher Institute, in uh, in 2017, just uh, four years ago, 18% of all US pregnancies ended in abortion. 18%, if you could imagine that, excluding miscarriage, right? That's a number approximating uh, 862,320. That's nearly a million babies that are killed in that year alone. What What allows a group of people to think of such things? is a hardness of heart. If you have a hardness of heart, it, it will allow you to do, to allow something that like that to take place. So the first uh, point of our message today, if you go to this slide it 's a sin that hardens the heart sin in this case, in the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh did not know God. Pharaoh was so powerful in fact, he thought that he was the Lord, you know the Lord of, the, of all of the earth was pharaoh and so so he probably thought that he had the right to to reduce the number of people in such a way. Now, it is with this legal injunction to kill ma- male Hebrew babies, this is the condition of Egypt into which Moses emerges out of God's story. He's born of a woman from the tri- tribe of Levi. Levi is one of the tribes of Israel, right? And when he was born, his mother had to put him in a basket and let, it, let, it, let the basket float away on the, on the river Nile. This is because if they found the baby... What would they have done? They would have killed him, right? So rather than having him being captured and built, you know discovered and killed, his mother Jochebed would rather give the baby a chance. She she basically literally throws the baby into chance, and uh, it was like a desperate act, desperate measure of a mother's faith. Better better giving the baby a chance on the river than to have him be captured. And as his providence would have it. Just further down the river, none other than the daughter of Pharaoh discovers the baby in this reed basket, picks him up, and rescues him. And guess what? This is the daughter of the very same Pharaoh that had ordered the Hebrew babies to be killed. She recognizes that it is a Hebrew baby, but she has pity on him. She has mercy on him. So, as the Egyptian midwives had a sense of the fear of God, we, we see that even Pharaoh's own daughter had compassion on this one baby. They get a woman. They say, "Hey, should we go get a woman to uh, should we get a woman to nurse the baby?" And so they did. And this happens to be by God's providence and not chance. Moses' own mother, Jochebed, is is actually employed now. She now she's getting paid to feed her own baby. If you could imagine that. And he was raised and adopt, as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, as Pharaoh's grandson by adoption. So in the land where every Hebrew man was enslaved, Moses had the unique privilege of growing up among the most privileged household in all of the land of Egypt. What an incredible turn of events. And we can imagine, if you could imagine, if you could put yourself in the shoes of Moses, there was a growing tension in his heart because he was watching the Hebrews being mistreated, right? By his own adopted, crazy grandfather. The Egyptians were following orders from Pharaoh and his own people were being mistreated harshly. And one day, after Moses had already grown up, he went out to where his own people were at their hard labor working. And even though he grew up in the royal courts of the king, Somehow, the knowledge of his true identity as a Hebrew, it must have slipped out somehow. He must have discovered, oh, I am not like them. And so, while he's watching his own people uh, being mistreated, there was a, uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So, what Moses does, is he looks to his left, he looks to his right, making sure that nobody's looking. He kills the Egyptian and sends, uh, buries him in the sand. And then the very next day he found two Hebrew people fighting amongst each other and he asked, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And then the man said, who made you ruler over us? Who made you ruler and judge over us? And then the man said, and then, and then, uh, and then the man said, are you going to kill us too like you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh, right? He had a sense of uh, justice. Moses had a sense of justice, but... He had taken matters into his own hand in killing that Egyptian. so he's going, "Oh man I've been found out I gotta get I got to that, I got get out of here." And Pharaoh finds out about this, and so he decides to hunt Moses down and kill him. but Moses flees, he runs away, he becomes a fugitive and he escaped to Midian where he lost all the privilege that he once had while he was living in the Egyptian courts. And he's forced into this circumstance. He, he, because of what he did, he has to now leave. And uh, he temporarily relocates, and the thing, things start to happen there where his, his life changes forever. Moses' life changes forever, started from there. First, he gets married. He gets a wife. Her name is Zipporah, and she's the daughter of Ruel, also known as Jethro, the priest of Midian and he retreats to a quiet life, tending sheep with his father-in-law. But this is when God reveals himself at Horeb, the mountain of God. And you remember last Sunday I shared with you that the Bible shows God revealing himself himself partially, not in totality, because nobody could handle that. We would just all probably disintegrate in that moment when he he shows himself in his totality. And it's gradually, progressively, We're not mature enough to handle all of who he is at once. He shows a little bit of himself as we we grow older and more mature in the faith. And in this particular snapshot, God gets Moses' attention by speaking out of a bush on fire. If You could imagine one of the bushes out there in the church. It's on fire, but while it keeps burning and burning, it's not burning up. Normally, wood just burns up and away and then it extinguishes, but not keeps going. Moshe, Moshe. God is calling Moses. And then, this is how Moses answers. He named me. Here I am. That's how you say it. Don't come any closer and take your sandals off for the place you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then, Moses hides his face for he was afraid to look upon God. Natural reaction, natural response. Unholy person, unholy people meeting the holy God, that's the only way we would rightfully respond. And here is where we meet the God of life, the God of liberation, foreshadowing Christ. We don't get the, the concrete, specific image of Christ, but here we see the, the gist of of what God is about. God of life, God of liberation. And this is what He says I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Second point of today's message, if you go to the slide, please. God has a tender heart towards our suffering. Have you ever suffered to the point where you thought, wow, God must not be there at all. He doesn't care. Have you? Well, it turns out that He does. When we groan in that inexpressible sigh of words, when we are found, when we find ourselves with nowhere else to turn to, God does answer. God does answer, and that is that is the good news of the of the message, if you will, today. Um, As we see the story of the Israelite unfold, he didn't turn a deaf ear. I mean, it might have been. A significant amount of waiting that they had to do on their part, but it wasn't like he was ignoring them. In fact, he he was devising a plan and involving a leader like Moses to come and deliver them. God commissions Moses, but Moses responds in this way. Moses goes, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He raises the objection. Right? in question In question of his own authority, who am I? Is failing to recognize who is commanding this authority. To give Moses further confidence, number one, God links his commission to the fulfillment of the promise of giving their own land of Canaan. God had made a promise to Abraham, right? Basically, at this moment, this is the moment of that fruition happening. He's calling back, gathering the people back onto himself, and Moses is going to be playing a part of that. And secondly, he even tells him his name. God never told Abraham his name, but he tells him, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And this is what he declares in, in front of Moses. And number three, he further reassures him by saying that, listen, go to the elders of Israel. When you go to the Israelites, since the likelihood of them all listening to you is not very high, at least talk to the elders of Israel and they will listen to you. And, but then here's more. Number four, he tells Moses ahead of time that he will find resistance. It's not like he will go in underprepared, thinking like, you know, with false expectations. He gives them, yeah, you're going to find some resistance. There's going to be some opposition. Verse uh, 19 of chapter 3, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels them. And And then the fifth one, he, since he keep talking about like uh, how he doesn't speak well enough, he even empowers him with a staff, with a big wooden staff, to do signs and wonders. That's the fifth one, right? And then the sixth one, he promises that none of them will leave Egypt empty-handed, but they will, they will get out of the place with articles of silver and gold. They'll have, they'll have some some provision. They'll have. Clothing for their children, for their sons and daughters. And then lastly, since he continues to object, uh, seven, he even assigns his brother as a partner, his brother Aaron, to speak on his behalf. So there's seven things that God does for, for uh, Moses so that he will find courage to lead the people out. But then Moses', Moses reluctance is this. His first objection, what if, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe you? This is actually a very likely objection, right? You tell them you have a message from God, but if they don't believe you, then you know. What's that in your hand? A staff. Throw it down on the ground. And then the staff becomes what? Do you remember? It becomes a snake. And then he tells them to pick it back up by the tail, and he turns back into the staff in his hand. Put your hands inside your cloak. So he puts his hand inside... And then he pulls it out, and it's like white, leprous as snow. And then he puts it back in, it comes back normal. So these signs and wonders is how God tries to uh, uh, curtail his fears and his, uh, and his uh, disbelief, his doubt. Second objection, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. I don't, I'm not eloquent like other people. And then God asks him, but well, you tell me, who gave you your mouth? Who who gave the human beings your mouth? I'll teach you what to say. And then in the last objection, it's not even really an objection. It's not like I can't do it. It's like a flat rejection. He just says, pardon your servant. Please send someone else. Can somebody else do it? Can somebody else go? By this point, the Lord's anger burns against Moses. This is when he appoints his older brother uh, as his speaker. And I don't know exactly how much time passes, but God tells Moses, now you are to return because everybody who's, who were hunting you down for your life, they're all dead. So you can tell some time passed. Now there's provision being made for them to return to the royal hometown in Egypt to take the Israelites out of that place. And uh, now here is where I want, you to, want us to take a moment to pause, briefly talk about the church. Take the people out of Egypt, the chosen Israelites, taking out of Egypt. I wonder if we could not read Egypt as the world. Egypt is like the world, and Israel is like the church. Let me explain. The church you may have heard during the membership class that in the original Greek it's a compound word, ecclesia. Can you say it with me, ecclesia, ecclesia, which means it's, it's a compound word with ek, which means out of, like one God says, out of Egypt I called my son. Ek, I go ek kalesa ton hui on mu. Ek kalesa, kaleo, ek kalesia. Kaleo, which is the verb to call. So we're called out. The Exodus is God's calling out his people, Israel, as a root of faith and the identity of the Israelites. And later on, this root sprouts and the branches and the leaves it spreads out all to all to all nations including gentiles to the very ends of the earth of course at the very trunk of it we have the cross we have Jesus Christ you could say that what we read in exodus is foundational not just to the jewish life but the called out christian life of jesus church now back to the story in chapter 4 towards the end It actually happened, what God was envisioning happened. Moses and Aaron brings together all the elders of the Israelites. This is their first encounter meeting, okay? And Aaron tells them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. It's like the story of the Bible that we read today, being told for the very first time to live pair of ears, right? And their response is incredible. Chapter 4, verse 30, the second part in 31. Of course, it wasn't just stories. He also performed some signs before the people and they believed. You know, the message was told and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, like their misery was not kept in the dark, he was seeing it all, he was witnessing it all. They bowed down and worshipped. Have you ever felt like you were going through something that is so unfair and it's not going notice and you wonder to yourself, is there a God that's seeing this? Is there a God that's witnessing this? But then later on, God himself shares with you. He gives you a reaffir- reaffir- reassurance and affirmation that he does and then how does your heart respond? You do respond like, a, oh wow, he's there. He has been, he's been paying attention to me. He's been watching me. The third point of uh, the message today, if you will go to the slide, please. Bowing down in worship keeps us from the hardness of heart. Usually, when our hearts are hardened into our own way, it's because we're failing a couple of things. We're failing to worship the living God who is watching over us and providing for us today, thinking that we're doing it all on our own. Or, altogether, not. Uh, paying attention to God alone, living living practically atheism, that God did not exist. So, in this effect of the the story being told to the elders, and then they're all buying down and worship, it is outstanding, outstanding result. This is exactly what God God wants to happen in a continuation. You know? God gets the most glory, and our lives are best when we are being met in that condition. Where we're Continual worship of Him. In the next chapter, when Moses and Aaron go up to Pharaoh and they start to make the demand finally, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness, Pharaoh says no. Pharaoh dares to say no to God. And he doesn't just say no, he says, Who is this Lord that I should listen to Him? Who is this Lord that I should obey? In in Pharaoh's mind, he himself is alone, right? This Pharaoh is actually annoyed that the momentum of labor by the Israelite slaves is interrupted while this is happening and decides to add cruel burdens on them. So just because Moses comes and asks them, hey, let my people go, I'll show you an unreasonable demand here. You made it, to Pharaoh, that's like an unreasonable demand that God's making. I'll show you, and he demands that you know, when they were making bricks. The slaves, one of the jobs that they had to do is make bricks. They had a quota. Let's say that each slave had to make like 300 bricks, okay, which is quite a lot. And uh, it was with dirt, mixing with water, and then you had like straw. They said, make them make the same amount of the quota that they used to make, but don't provide don't provide the aid for the, or the straw. So they had to provide that for themselves, and so they're in trouble. They have to produce the same quota. Product. The production cannot change in number, but the, the material is not being provided. So he adds this layer of cruel burden on them to keep them focused at, on the labor at hand because, well, you've got to be busy, busy, busy so you're not too distracted with the fanciful notion of worshiping God out in a three-day retreat out in the wilderness. This puts Moses in a very difficult position. His demanding to let the Israelites go has brought on another layer of Pharaoh's cruelty against his own people. The Israelites blame who? They blame Moses and Aaron. They they cast down a curse on him. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're really upset. Because their life did not improve. It got only harder. These people are, are pronouncing a curse over their own leadership. That's said, what's going on here? And of course, Moses returns to God and asks, Lord, what's going on? Why have you brought trouble on, the, on, the pe- on your people to us? And This is where the Lord makes a promise to Moses, just watch what I do. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. When you continue to read the story of Exodus, it's all about God's doing things. God is doing things and making things happen and for his own purposes. A lot of times we miss that because we put ourselves in the very middle of the story. As people that experience the story, as people that we, we were the protagonists of our own lives, right? But we realize that yes, while we are the chief... Uh, people that experience it, there is somebody behind the scenes allowing certain things to happen for his own purposes. Just as uh, we went over last Sunday, God gives plenty of reassurance, but we see the morale of the people way down. I mean, Moses has enough compelling evidence and it's in his heart. I mean, he's met with the living God who gives a living message for the people. And uh, even Moses himself questions if he's able. My own people are not listening to me. Will the Pharaoh, since I, since I speak with faltering lips, will Pharaoh listen to me? He, he actually voices his insecurity more than once. And this is a process by which Moses and Aaron, you know how old they are by this point? Moses is 80 years old at this point, and his, his brother Aaron, who happens to be older, is 83. They're coming to learn the Lord. They're coming to learn His ways. Even though they fulfill a very important leadership function, what we do notice in the story is that it's ultimately not about them. All that matters in their life is their faith and obedience because who is about to bring the liberation of the Israelites is none other than God Himself, the very Almighty One. Amen? Hallelujah. In the chapters that proceed from seven, we see a showdown between Moses and the Egyptian magician in a contest of miracles and magic. So if God's prophet is able to do something, sign and wonder, Aaron throws down his staff and he becomes a snake, they do the same thing. They're able to rep- reproduce this counterfeit miracle. They do a magical art in front of God's people. And then, of course, in this contest, Aaron's staff that had turned to the snake. His snake actually swallowed up their snake. But Pharaoh's heart is not moved. Pharaoh's heart is not moved by this display of power, just like God foretold. Shortly after begins a series of plagues. And if you grew up on the Sunday school, uh, how many of you have recollection of Sunday school? You grew up when you were a little kid in Sunday school. Okay, so this series of plagues should be pretty... uh, not unfamiliar to you. They go, they go like this. There's ten plagues, And the first one, the Nile turning to blood. We have this river that is a source of potable water and all their cooking. In, out in the desert where without water you perish, it turns to blood undrinkable. Number two, of the frogs. The entire nation being completely covered with these amphibians all over the place. The third one, the gnats. The fourth one, the flies. And each time, Pharaoh appears to yield. Okay, I give, I give, I give up. Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away, and I will let your people go to offer your sacrifices to your God. And each time Moses complies, and after Pharaoh gets what he wants, this, this temporary relief, he hardens his heart again, and he goes back on his word. He appears to budge against the flies, but again, he hardens his heart again. And then when God strikes down the livestock of the Egyptians, when the Egyptians are struck with boil, he doesn't even budge. You're so used to having your heart hardened, even when the calamities and the catastrophes happen before you, you don't respond. Something that happens in the human condition, as exemplified by this Pharaoh. But at the seventh plague of a violent hailstorm, this is a horrendous hailstorm, like big chunks of ice falling from the sky. And when, you guys remember, if there was ever like a big hailstorm, it starts damaging property. Like your car windshield could be smashed in. And this is what's happening. It was killing livestock. It was killing like, you know, even people were being very, very hurt by this. And uh, devastation after devastation. After, after the, uh, uh, the hailstorm. Okay, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, I will let you go. And after Moses prays, he changes his mind again. Devastation after devastation, he repeats this pattern.
1: And the next one,
0: on the eighth one, the swarm of locusts. Okay, okay, I give. Please pray for this to end and then go, go. And Right as Moses does pray, right away again, he changes his mind. this vacillation. Okay, I will go. Okay, I will do your will and he comes back, it's like, it's, like a one, it's like a believer who says, Jesus is Lord of the throne of my heart. But then like later on, after, after we've done that, we come back and sit in our own throne. It's like, it's like we, we haven't really truly abdicated the throne of our heart. Jesus sits here, and then we somehow yank him away, and then put him back in that throne. It's like that signal, that, that kind of a, a, a situation going on right here. And here is the ninth plague, the plague of palpable darkness. It's a kind of darkness that you can feel on your skin, is what it says. And it says that it paralyzed the people for three days. They can't even move for all that time. And, uh, and a Pharaoh appears to, to give in again. All right, go. But the Lord, it says, but the Lord now hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh told Moses, get out of my sight. If, you, if I ever see you again, you will be dead. Moses replied, as you say, you will never see me again. Now, we're approaching the end. Okay? Just hang in there a little bit. Now comes the final plague. But before one more plague, the Israelites are warned by God to gather. Now you've to prepare. Gather the articles of silver and gold from, you, from your neighbors. And uh, they will be favorably disposed to you. They will have compassion on you. They have have seen you suffer your your slavery and cruelty. So they'll they'll open their wallet, so to speak, right? And about midnight, every firstborn of Egypt will die. The plague of death of every firstborn, one that would cause the greatest anguish, was still in store. It was still stored up in in God's storehouse of wrath. And the whole time, The point that God emphasizes is a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All the firstborn of Egypt will die, but the firstborn of Israel will be spared. How does that story sound to us now? How does the story of the plagues read to us now after the coronavirus pandemic? Doesn't it read a little bit differently? For me, it does. It reads very differently, especially since we're going to go back now we, uh, I see the shepherds here. We have received some of our have received their vaccine, and we're coming into the new normal, right? What I'm thinking is, what's next? This was pretty hard. This it took a toll on so many, so many aspects of our living. But what's coming next? Is what I'm thinking. And what happens next in the in the scripture is very important. It's the institution of the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. If you remember, there was a. It says, in the, when you keep reading, it says that they were there as slaves for 430 years. Generations have passed away serving on their bondage of slavery in, in that land. And so it's a momentous occasion when God pulls them out, using a reluctant leader to draw them out into the wilderness to lead them to become a people of them, their own. Not their own, but a people, a chosen nation of his own. God saying, you are mine. You're not, I did not make you to be slaves, to be enslaved by that country, but you're my people. Right? Each household is to share. Uh, not, not every household household has is able to afford a lamb, so, you know, some, let's say house church. Let's say each house church gathers together and kills a lamb, gathers, dips the blood, and then is painted over the doorpost of their house. That's the passage. Right? And, they are to eat the lamb that was slaughtered over roasted fire. I wonder if uh, uh, like kebab, you know, kebab and shawarma, like the Mediterranean, like goat meat and that kind of lamb chops and stuff. I wonder if it, if it didn't begin from this. You're, supposed to, you're not supposed to boil it. You're not supposed to fry it. You're supposed to cook it on a, on a roast, roast it on a fire. And uh, along you're going to have to put in some bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of Egypt and the bread without yeast. Because bread, you need, the yeast, you need time to kind of let it rise. Without yeast, it's cooked right away, and then you're able to eat in a rush. Because you're going to celebrate, but you're, gonna, you're not going to just sit there and party on You're going to celebrate in a rush. Because you're going to have to eat it quickly and then, and then get out of there. And this day is called a Passover, because at midnight, the angel of death strikes every firstborn in Egypt while passing over, Israel. This is what salvation looks like. They were saved. They were spared. From Ramesses to Sukkot, 600,000 men on foot beside women and children. We're talking about, if we're talking about 600,000 men, not counting the women and children, we're talking about nearly two, if not over two million Hebrews taking a massive exit Massive migration on foot out of Egypt. Absolutely incredible. Can you imagine at the break of dawn, the wailing of the Egyptian household to discover their firstborn son dead? Can you imagine it? The confrontation with Pharaoh ends effectively with their firstborn being killed, while the Israelite firstborn are to be consecrated as a memorial of them. Sometimes we mistake God thinking that he took great pleasure you know, in vindicating the, the Israelites, but that's not the case. In any event, there is a human sacrifice. In any event, somebody has to be struck down. God does not rejoice in that. What, what do we know about his nature? He doesn't want any one of us to perish. That's why he sent his son. He doesn't want a single one of us to perish. That's why he sent his son. This is the last point of our message. I hope that it really is driven home for us. The last point of the message is, it is the sacrifice of Jesus as the antidote and cure against this hardness of heart. Why the Passover? Why is that instituted? Why the blood of the Lamb? Why do we call Jesus the Lamb? Why do we we take the cup of His blood during the communion, which we will have next week? It's all linked together. It's fused into one long story that wraps around us like a big hug from God. Brothers and sisters, the story of Exodus leads to a people, the Israelites, being claimed unto himself by none other than God. God himself, God who has created the heavens and the earth, saying, you are mine. I claim you as my people. All of this so that the Jews, through the Jews, salvation may come. Why is it important that the, it has to be Jews? The only reason that I could tell you is because Jesus comes as a Jew. Jesus Christ comes into the lineage of, of the Jewish history, into their heritage, and I hope you're able to see the connectedness of all of this, why God says, "Out of Egypt, I have called myself." In the story of Abraham, we have seen where a ram was provided so that Isaac would not have to be sacrificed. You guys remember that story, right? Was it easy for Abraham to conceive a child with the the 90-year-old wife of his? It was not, but it happened. And after Isaac reaches a certain age, God tests him, says, That precious son of yours, your one and only begotten son, give him to me. Sacrifice him up on Mount Moriah. And we have the child. Can you imagine Abraham's heart when he is taking his son by the hand? and he's walking up the, the camp. But then, we have all the wood, and the, we have all the wood for the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And then do you know how Abraham answers? He says, God will provide. God will provide. And of course, just as he, he was about to obey, he was about to go all the way with this boy. God stops them. And then what do they discover? With its horn stuck in the thicket of the brush, it's it's a lamb. In the Exodus, we see the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the Israelites that have the angel as a signal, the angel of death, they pass over them. It's a gesture of grace over and against judgment. How many of you prefer his grace over his judgment. Grace, right? Grace. It is the grace of God that we're reading about here. When you read on in the story of Exodus, God delivers them from the Egyptians that pursue them in chariots. By what? Splitting the Red Sea wide open and having his people cross. <laughs> Imagine two million people crossing this body of water. In, in a very short period of time I don't know how long but you know it can be too long and then just as the Egyptians are pursuing them in chariots right all of them are swallowed up by the water uh, the passageway uh, completely taken down and then they drown so whatever threat that remained from the pursuit is done later as god would have him into training as our verse 8 today uh, States. They were being tested. After they crossed the water, right, what happens is that they travel. They travel with God and they have to go through these things that God is instructing them. The division of the camps. To go from one place to another to the promised land, it could have been a pretty short period of time, short travel, but God, in there with disobedience, they have to meander. It could be point A to B very short, but they're doing this. They're doing like all of this, and it take, ends up taking 40 years. In today's verse in Hebrews, what we see is that God was putting them into training, God was testing them. Verse 8 says that they were being tested. As I live my life, brothers and sisters, I can tell you that there are many tests that I did not pass very well. I failed some tests. But when a rebellion came from his own people, just like it did to Pharaoh, as they hardened their own hearts, God did not spare them. Remember from the generations that were meandering and wandering around in that area? Not all of them made it to the Canaan. It was the younger generation, the older generation perished in that that place, they died. Take a moment for you to imagine the hardness of of the heart of the people who crucified Jesus. I'm not talking about just the soldiers that were holding him down and actually pounding the nail into into his hands, but the people that were just ruthless saying that he does not deserve to die. Give us Barabbas instead, but crucify him. Crucify him. I learned that You know, when we see uh, in the movies or in the artwork, we see Jesus hanging on the cross, and he's usually covered by a loincloth. I learned that that's historically actually inaccurate. He was stark naked, dangling there on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. Humiliated. The man God Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, but to bring the love of our, our God the Father in Himself, in His person was the love of God. And what God? What? What do people do? People that have the hardness of heart, you have to kill them. Jesus says that He cries out,
1: "Forgive them,
0: Father, for they do not know what they're doing." They don't know what they're doing. That brutal judgment that that brutal judgment that Jesus took on the cross was so that we would be granted. A heart of flesh instead of the ruthless heart of stone we come to terms with our own sinfulness we're able to look within and maybe have that fear that i don't want that hardness apart i don't want that hardness apart that is our gospel we who have received Jesus place our sins on that same cross to receive his righteousness the amount of righteousness it took for him to take the cross, right? On that very same cross we put our sins and we receive his righteousness. That is now our posture is ready to take the suffering that comes that Jesus took himself. And we leave nothing to chance. We march forward toward God's love and the incomparable grace of his rest. We look to the cross. That's our tree of life, brothers and sisters. That is what we find. In all the ways, we're discontented, meandering through the desert in the bitterness of our dissatisfaction. We're reminded, hey guys, this here, this all you have here, this is this is not all there is. This is just that maybe very infinitesimal small tip of the iceberg. There's so much more in store for you. That's what the Lord is saying every time He's pointing our attention to you the comments. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Lord, help us lay aside our hurts, our fears, our shame, so we can receive anew the joy of your salvation. We recognize that we all deserve death in sin, in hell, in judgment but your great love has rescued us and your sacrifice is before us to fix our eyes on. We seek your mercy, we seek your grace because you are the true hope and it is your love that keeps us in our feet. We thank you Lord for the birth of Miracle Land Baptist Church 49 years ago. We thank you for calling us out of the world so that we could be worshipers of you and no other. Later today, as we celebrate the installation of a new lead pastor for our church, let your presence be felt as a light that one can feel, and let your truth shine in the ways that sets our hearts free. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. And we'll have a time of praise and response, and a time of offering.